Hello, welcome to the next in my series of studies in John's Gospel. Hooray and hurrah, we're into chapter 9. However, the hooray and hurrah is slightly tempered by, we're going to talk about one of the most difficult subjects, that is suffering. Jesus encounters someone who has suffered from birth and the conversation that he has with the disciples is at part incredibly reassuring and in part slightly perplexing. I want to try and unpack it and give us some practical steps forward and how we respond to suffering. First, let us say that we're never going to completely solve the question of suffering. And all of us experience suffering in one way or another. And we all are equally deeply affected by the suffering of others. And we feel a sense of being able to fix it. Very often we're asked to try and explain it. And that is where this story begins. With the disciples asking Jesus to explain suffering. We ended chapter Eight with the crowd wanting to kill Jesus because of the remarkable thing that he just said. And I refer you to our last study. John chapter 9 begins in this way. As he went along, now this was probably another day. This was probably possibly even a few months later. It's a completely a different occasion. As he went along, as Jesus went along, he saw a man blind from birth. Now, that's obviously uh, incredibly difficult for anybody. In those days and in that culture, that meant that they would not be able to have an income. So they would be begging. They would be destitute. They would be people who had really been marginalised by society. Now, the belief was then, as is often amongst religious people, and particularly amongst religious people who sort of base their theology on a misunderstanding of the Old Testament, the belief was that this was probably this person's fault. Many religions talk about reincarnation, that people pay in this life for the sins of a previous life. Now, the Jews didn't believe in reincarnation, but they did believe that in some way our sins uh, would have a consequence on our life or our children's lives. His disciples asked him, Rabbi, who sinned, this man or his parents, that he was born blind? They're asking the why of suffering. And their question is, was it, uh, is suffering caused by our sin, whether in this life or another? Is it, in fact, God's punishment? That wasn't an unusual question to be asked. But Jesus' answer is unusual. Because he's very clear. He says, neither this man nor his parents sinned. He is saying, and this is a really important point for us to understand. He's saying that the unexplicable suffering, in other words, suffering that doesn't seem a direct consequence of stupid behavior or wicked behavior by somebody else. He is saying that unexplained suffering is not explained by sin. It is not caused by our own uh, sin that's being punished in some way by God. He's very clear about this. So that then perhaps leaves us with some other questions. Well, what has caused this man to be born blind? Is it, has it been God's will? Has God purposed this for a reason? Or has it been done by Satan? 
or is it that the world is randomly broken? Now, those are three questions that we in the 21st century tend to ask this text. And they're probably not the questions that were in the mind of the disciples, nor the questions that Jesus was particularly answering. And it's always difficult and dangerous to try and use uh, something to answer questions that we now ask that weren't necessarily what was sought to be answered. Nevertheless, I think I want to have a go. Uh, I may get this wrong and uh, may cause all kinds of further questions. But the way Jesus then goes on to speak does raise lots of questions for us here in the 21st century. He says, Neither this man nor his parents sinned, but this happened so that the works of God might be displayed in him. Now, we need to be very clear that our principles of understanding the Bible and taking it as authority for our living is to try to get as close as we possibly can to what the writer, the speaker intended. In other words, what did Jesus mean by this phrase? Because on the face of it, it seems that he is saying, well, no, this man has simply made being made blind because it was God's will so that he could, Jesus could then come along and heal him, as we'll find out in our next study. Is this what Jesus meant? That God made him blind simply in order to prove his power later in his life? If we're asking the question, what did Jesus mean? We need to make sure that it's consistent with the understanding that Jesus was probably alluding to. Now, I want to suggest that when the disciples asked, what, who, whose sin was this? That very likely two passages of the Old Testament were in the mind of Jesus. The first is one that we looked at last week because he's just hinted at it in the end of John chapter 8. And I refer you back to that. But I want to go back and look at that passage again because you'll see from it that it echoes the question that the disciples have asked. You see, Moses asked God who he is. And God says that he will reveal himself, not in a way that's visually seen, but in a description as God passes by Moses. He passed in front of Moses proclaiming this is the definitive, the fundamental definition of who God is. And it's really important for our understanding of how Jesus saw himself. Remember, he's just declared himself to be Yahweh, the Lord. And the description of Yahweh, the Lord, is this, the compassionate and gracious God. Now, a compassionate and gracious God, it would seem to me on face value, does not create beings with problems just so that at some point he could prove himself to be greater. That seems quite a self-centered God. Now, why is this passage in the mind of Jesus? Well, if we go through it, we will see that this uh, description of the graciousness and compassion of God is expounded. He is slow to anger. He is abounding in love and faithfulness. Now, if you're abounding in love and faithfulness, I do not believe you create your children as beggars. Simply that 30, 40 years later, you can do a miracle. He is maintaining love to thousands. Now, here's the next key bit. We talked about this before, but it's worth re-emphasizing. This God is defined as the God who forgives wickedness, 
rebellion and sin. Now that's a pretty all-inclusive description of man's problem. And the description of God is the one who forgives. Yet, the next part of the description of God is also important. He does not leave the guilty unpunished, but punishes the children and the children for the, and their children for the sin of the parents in the third and fourth generation. Now, this is why the disciples ask this question, thinking probably of this verse. Now, what we said before, and we, I want to repeat, is this. That if God is forgiving the one who forgives wickedness, rebellion, and sin, what is the guilt that he punishes? It's not re- wickedness, rebellion, and sin. Because he's already forgiving that. No, it's clear to me and the way Jesus unpacks what mankind needs to do. The guilt that he punishes is unrepentance, is pride is the, 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 the attitude of saying, I do not need or want God's forgiveness. And then the justice of God kicks in and he says, look, I cannot have this behavior in heaven. But not only that, that those who are unrepentant and do not turn away from their sin, that has an impact on their children and their children's children. And it causes all kinds of problems But what Jesus is saying in his answer to the disciples is, look, that passage doesn't mean that God makes people blind. That passage means that the unrepentant damage their families. Now, the second story that I think is really probably in the mind of Jesus or the second part of the Old Testament is the story and the whole book, in fact, of Job. You may be familiar with the story of Job where Job is a man who is righteous and Satan comes to God and says he only worships and follows you because everything's good in his life. And I want you to notice this little passage where God says very well, So Satan went out from the presence of the Lord and afflicted Job with painful sores from the soles of his feet to the crown of his head. Now, if you know the story well, Job's comforters, his three friends, come and they tell him that he's sinned. They tell him that he needs to confess and renounce his sin. And he's unable to do that. And we know what his comforters, comforters is an ironic term, they're really his tormentors, but we know what they don't know, which was that it was Satan who caused the suffering. So when the disciples appear to be echoing the words of these friends of Joseph, whose sin, your sin, the sin of the man born blind, it seems to me that it's very likely that Jesus was reaffirming not only Exodus, but reaffirming Job. And that's echoed in the understanding of John, the gospel writer, because we read these words in his letter, his first letter that comes after his gospels. He writes a letter to the churches. He says, we know that we are children of God and that the whole world is under the control of the evil one. Now, that's a verse that's a little controversial, and often mislaid by some streams of Christianity. The world is under the control, allowed by God, yes. But it seems to me that the New Testament and probably what Jesus is inferring 
is that suffering is the responsibility and caused by Satan, just as it was for Job, and that it's not God's punishment. Paul says this, for our struggle is not against flesh and blood, but against the rulers, against the authorities, against the powers of this dark world, against the spiritual forces of evil in the heavenly realms. So there seems to be a sense in the New Testament, the disciples, the apostles understood that there was a spiritual conflict where Satan was allowed at this point to have real power and that he could and did cause infirmity. So if we ask ourselves, what did Jesus mean? I don't think he meant that God had caused the suffering. I think it's probable something like this, and it is complex, but I want to try and unpack it, that Satan is allowed freedom to cause suffering in order to show God's greater power, that salvation and love freely chosen is greater than a world without free will. So Satan chose the man that he would blind. And God allows Satan to have this freedom. But the greater work that is now displayed is that the love of God is greater than any of the schemes of Satan and that the delivering power to set free humanity from the enslavement that Satan would bring is greater. Why is this man born blind? Because Satan is allowed freedom that the works of God might be displayed in you and I and this man as God sets us free, as we choose his life. It may be that we want a third option, which was that the world is randomly broken as a result of the fall and that the universe has free will to show that freely choosing God is the best way. I'm not so sure that that's what Jesus meant, but it's possible that he had an understanding that these things just happen. But what matters now is that God is going to set this man free. Now, lest you think I kind of make these things up, here's a quote from the Expositor's Bible Commentary. It is not as though, the writer says, it is not as though God decided this particular individual should be blind from birth so that he should have the opportunity to show how great a work he could perform. It is rather that he overruled the misfortune so that both the man and those who would see the miracle would come to realise that Jesus was the light of the world. Many of you use the message and uh, I often say that it's not particularly for me a translation of the Bible. It's a commentary of the Bible. It's uh, a way of uh, giving an opinion and understanding of how one could interpret verses. And Eugene Peterson does that in his version of John, 3, John 9 verse 3. This is how the message reads. Jesus said you are asking the wrong question. You're looking for someone to blame. There is no such cause effect here. Look instead for what God can do. Now, I don't think that's a translation, but I do think it's quite a good explanation of the verse. Probably a better explanation than I've tried to give you. But I've tried to explain why we think 
that the way we read it first off from the 21st century is probably not what Jesus meant because of his relationship uh, with Exodus and Job and the way they'd phrased the question. So what do we learn from this and how do we apply it to our lives? We want to ask the question, why? Why has this happened? And invariably, in the answer to Job, in the answers in Isaiah, in so many places, God doesn't say why. But what Jesus is inviting us to ask now is what now? It's not why, but what now? It doesn't matter how the suffering has occurred in one aspect. What really matters is how is God going to work his power and his glory now going forward? And so the question to ask ourselves is how might the work of God be displayed in the difficulty of our lives? Romans 8 says, and we know that in all things, God works for the good of those who love him have been called according to his purpose. That as he calls us and we respond in love, he then transforms all the rubbish that might have happened in our life and works good out of it. I do not believe it is compatible with defining and describing God as gracious and compassionate and abounding in love to say that he purposes bad things. I do not believe that is compatible with the way uh, Jesus and Job understand the work and role of Satan. But I do think it's an important principle to hold on to that God promises to take what is bad. And if we respond and turn to him in love and seek his purposes, he will bring about good. Now, I'm going to touch on that for a few moments now in what I will call part one. But in my second study in a week's time, we're going to look in more depth at how we partner with God in transforming the difficult situations. It's not that we explain why. And it's not even that we make out that suffering is good. It's simply that God brings something out of it. I think it is almost blasphemous to say that God purposes bad things. But it's gloriously uh, faith-filled to say that God redeems and rescues the Life Application Bible says this, regardless of the reasons for our suffering, Jesus has the power to help us deal with it. When you suffer from a disease, tragedy or disability, try not to ask, why did this happen to me? What did I do wrong? Instead, ask God to give you the strength for the trial and a clearer perspective on what is happening. That's their comment on this verse. And then in verse four, Jesus says something that I hadn't really picked up on before, which seems quite significant. He says, as long as it is day, we do, must do the works of him who sent me. Night is coming when no one can work. And I've never really thought about this verse before, but he seems to be implying that the power to heal this man is greater there with Jesus in the flesh than that time when Jesus would ascend. And so it seems to me that there may be times now where it's harder for us to see this kind of deliverance. Now we're commissioned and encouraged and, and commanded to continue to pray for healing. 
But we don't see the same healings that Jesus did. Not on the scale. We see glimpses of the kingdom of God. But Jesus seemed to have a fuller and deeper expression. I think it's really important for us to keep on asking God and to keep on seeking. But the first thing in trying to recognize of God bringing good out of our difficult situation might perhaps be to recognize that life is a little bit harder now that he's ascended. But Jesus goes on in verse 5 and he says, while I'm in the world, I am the light of the world. So I want to conclude with this thought that if we're asking the question, how might the work of God be displayed in our difficult lives, we need to turn to the light. We need to turn away from the darkness of various things. And I just want to unpack that briefly and practically for us. It means choosing. We turn to Jesus as the light of the world. We recognize there is darkness. We recognize it's difficult. We recognize there will be suffering. We recognize that we are not immune. We're not going to avoid it. We're not going to live in some kind of bubble where everything goes perfectly right but we still choose to turn towards the light what does that mean i want to suggest that that means choosing a number of things a decision of the will that in time affects the heart we choose to wait patiently rather than to blame so often the scriptures talk about waiting patiently for god because god is seen in patience not bitterness we don't know how, man, long this, how old this man was and how long he had waited. But we may need to wait for God. And if we want to see God bring good out of our suffering, let's wait in a way that draws people to God rather than pushes us away. Let's not uh, turn to bitterness and resentment and anger with God. So the question that we're going to ask for a few moments is what difference does it make to our suffering to stop asking why and to start asking what now? So what does waiting patiently look like for us? How can we do that in a way that helps people come near to God rather than push him away. Because to choose to turn to the light means to choose hope over despair. You see, hope is infectious and it turns people to God and it's found in the scriptures that speak of what God is going to do and what the future awaits and our citizenship in heaven and how he will transform, how he will move all the things that in this life seem destructive and how he will bring good out of our evil. So how do we choose hope? How do we allow the hope of Scripture to drive out despair? Richard Raw says, until there has been a journey through suffering, I don't believe we have true healing authority or the ability to lead anybody any place new. And so if we're saying to God, Lord, take my suffering and use it for your glory. Lord, do something good out of this. Make it have a purpose and a meaning. One of those purposes and meanings is that we become people who others can follow. Because we've been through the waters and the fire and the valley. 
And we choose faith over fear because the conquest of fear draws people to God. We live in a world where people are anxious and fearful. And sometimes we choose to believe that God has us in the palm of his hands, that he will never leave us or forsake us, that he will work all things together for good, that he will lead us safely home, that the waters will not overrun us, that the fire will not consume us. And we choose that faith over fear to drive out despair. So what fears do we have? that can be counted by, countered by the beliefs of our faith that might help others to see how we suffer and find God in our suffering. And as we turn to the light and away from the darkness, we choose love over hurting. Because when we are hurting, the temptation is to hurt others in our anger, in our frustration. And so I want to ask us to reflect for a moment, who are we hurting in our hurting? Who takes the brunt? And what might choosing to love look like for them? And the last idea in choosing to turn to the light in order that God might redeem or bring some good out of our suffering is choosing to find gratitude over complaint. I don't mean being grateful for the thing that is troubling or hurting or damaging us, but looking around it and looking beyond it, looking underneath it and seeing what God has been doing and is doing. What difference does it make to our suffering to stop asking why and start asking what now? And looking beyond our suffering, what can we be thankful for? These ideas don't make suffering easier. They don't explain why we suffer. They're not an answer for the traumas and difficulties that we or our friends or loved ones might be going through. But I do think the concept of seeking to ask what now rather than why is the road to freedom, to hope, to peace, to new life, to deliverance. Let's pray together. Lord, help us to look forward rather than backwards, to partner and cooperate with you, the God who brings good out of all that is afflicting us, the God who transforms the darkness, the God who brings light, the God who restores, who redeems, who rebuilds, who renews. Lord, take our suffering and use it for your glory that we may be patient and hopeful and loving and discover gratitude. Pray for all who are watching now who feel deep suffering at this moment, or those of us, we are deeply concerned for others and we place them in your hands. And Lord, as you come to this man, so we ask you to come to those we care for. 
Help us to partner with you going forward. In Jesus' name, amen.